Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing? I am great here in my underground bunker. How are you doing, Mr. Real? I'm doing really good in my home office, uh, sitting here on my at my desk. And uh, both of us, uh, I'm excited for tonight's Mormonism Live. Both of us have been uh, reading a bunch, preparing. And uh, before we get started, any thoughts from you on other things going on? I've got one little announcement, of, actually a big event, Thrive coming to St. George this weekend. That is a big deal. Yes, it is. I will not be there, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but I will be there in spirit. Uh, I think that this bunker where I am is the only place that's not being affected directly by the fact that Brad Wilcox has blown up the internet and half of the galaxy. You and I, behind the scenes here before the show started, we watched uh, a little clip of a bunch of things he did during that that had nothing to do with the actual substance of what he said, which was way worse. But I know. He, he seemed a little unhinged, didn't he? Yeah, do you have that? It reminded me a little bit of Curly from the Three Stooges. Yeah, yeah, actually, I could play that. Let's uh, let me see if I can pull that up here really quick. Um, Somebody put this montage together. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. It's almost as good a montage as a Rocky workout. Give me a second, and I will move it over here. And we're gonna put the sound on. Now we're gonna share the screen. Here it comes. Here we go. You ready? I was part of the very first FSY that they did in North America. Oh, whoa, did you see that? Uh-uh. And he said, uh-huh. And I said, uh-uh. He said, uh-uh. Uh uh-uh. uh, and they go uh uh-huh. and they go uh uh-uh. uh, and then we're fighting again. On water? What water? I don't see any water behind him. Whoa! <laughs> He'll do a face palm here. It's the, the same thing. Oh, I love that. why don't you give women the priesthood what's malaria i don't know but the women should have it that guy's not okay with it (laughs) 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 yes are we having refreshments? Uh, uh, no. no, no refreshments. Right, RFM. Let's go straight no. home. You're, You're heading, heading out the back, back door, door as soon as, soon as possible. possible. <laughs> that poor guy. Oh, there, man. On the far right, the bald guy. He looks like he wants a bigger mask. He does, and and I'll tell you that what you just saw wasn't even the worst of it. <laughs> so no, and none of that was uh, done anything to apparently except for the editing. Yeah. 
Yeah, there was no sound effects added. That wasn't me. You know, the guy who does Boyd K. Packer's voice along with a bunch of others. That wasn't me adding anything. That was all my good friend, Brad Wilcox, who, uh, man, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I wrote him an email, actually, the morning after all that went down. And Would you remind uh, the audience of your relationship with Brad, just for those who don't remember? Yeah. Like me? Yeah. So when I first got turned on to podcast and MP3 files and an MP3 player and listening to everything I could get my hands on Mormon. One of the very first things I got excited about were guys like Robert Millett, Stephen Robinson, uh, Brad Wilcox uh, in regards to grace and uh, how they framed it very different than LDS leaders. And so I reached out to Brad early on in 2012 when I was doing the Mormon discussion podcast for the first year. And Brad said he would come on and we did about a two, two and a half hour interview. And I really, at that moment, what made him a rock star was his approach to grace, his kindness, his inclusivity, and really pushing back against the way leaders had framed grace for a hundred years. But he somehow has gotten away from that. And now he is kind of one of them in, in his rhetoric, but the antics uh, are amplified. Yeah. Plus he's gotten into doing three Stooges impressions. It, yeah, it looked a little like Curly, didn't it? Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, I imagine that Brad's having trouble getting to sleep at night at this point. He's probably going through a great deal of stress. Yeah, my, and I sent Brad, I actually sent Brad a podcast about consent in the church and how consent is violated all the time by Mormonism. And my two cents to him is, I said, it's the best advice you'll probably not take. But my two senses, listen to this podcast and sit with the feelings of what you're dismissing and also get in touch with what made you recognizable and why people loved you to begin with because you've gone off track. And uh, I, I don't know that he'll even read it, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, he's probably also going to have to get in touch with the unemployment office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he may not be in the young men's presidency too long, huh? Uh, I think, well, here's the deal. This is not the subject of tonight's show, and you still got to make the announcement about Thrive. By the way, was that a podcast that you had created about consent that you sent him? No, me and Brittany Hartley did a podcast on consent, but one of the things we used to prepare for that conversation was a podcast called Emancipate Your Mind by Terry Hales. It's a female. She's a post-Mormon, and when she talks about consent within a religious paradigm, she uses tons of Mormon examples. And there were so many that I didn't even think about until I listened to her that resonated emotionally, um, that, that really had a big impact uh, on me and on our preparation for that episode, as well as uh, Brittany, too. She would self-admit that that had an impact on her, too. So anyway. Yeah. Are you um, able, was it a long email? Or are you able to synopsize it or maybe, maybe even read it to the audience? Because I know my ears always perk up when you talk about sending your little emails to church leaders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was there was one where I sent one after your episode on uh, God, on a, whale, on of a tale whale of a tale. tale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember that. I thought that was so funny. You did that. You know, yeah. Bill sends an email to the general authority who told the story in general conference and explaining to him in delicious detail why it is that story did not happen. Yeah. Here's my quick email to Brad. Brad, your recent comment about post-Mormons having a negative countenance is both uh, hateful and ridiculous. No, that's a different one. Sorry, I've sent him one before, too. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
I sent him one about a year ago when he was when he was picking on people who had left the church. Let me go into a different email really quick. And they have that dark countenance. And of course, it's the Mormons who have the glowing countenance. I remember that. Yeah. And so it's this, you know, he's he's over the last few years, he's done some of this several times where he kind of goes off track and kind of hurts himself. Here it is. I said, uh, the best advice you will ever get, Brad. What made you a Mormon rock star was your kindness, your appearing genuine, your grace theology, which was not only inclusive, but juxtaposed against LDS leaders past and present, whose theology around grace and perfectionism was toxic. Then you started sounding like an LDS leader, using negative shame and negative manipulation to make the church sound good. You have zero reason to trust me, but some soul searching is needed. Otherwise, you are on the fast track to just be a guy everyone has an aversion to rather than the guy who wrote the continuous atonement. You seem to be losing touch with that guy. Do me one giant favor and it will change your life. Listen to one single podcast on consent within religion. The host is a former Mormon. Sit with the feelings and emotion of how much Mormonism violates consent, how consent in our religion isn't real. At one time, you chose to espouse a form of grace that rose above LDS theology that LDS leaders past and present had handed you. You need to reconnect with why people connected with you in the first place. Then I put the link in. I said, stop becoming one of them. Make the church a healthier place. That was what was attractive about you in the first place. Yeah, that was really, really well put. You know, when you talk about uh, he's on a one-way trip, reminds me of Marlon Brando and on the waterfront when he says, uh, oh, a one-way ticket to Palookaville. Actually, that sounded more like Stallone. A one-way ticket to Palookaville. <laughs> it was you, Charlie. It was you all along. Yeah, that, that Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> That's where he is. I mean, he's on a one-way trip to Palookaville right now. Yeah, I mean, he's not saying anything that LDS leaders haven't said in the past. It's just that it's not attractive. Nobody wants to hear it. And uh, what what people did want to hear from him, he doesn't seem to espouse that anymore. I know. I think he's, I don't think he's getting any feedback. Of course, then again, there was this comment from somebody who was quoted in the Salt Lake Tribune article on the story who said that he's been doing this for years in spite of feedback that he's gotten that he shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if he changes sometime here and uh, if something else essentially happens. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, well, this is now a political hot potato because the church has been uh, broadcasting its newfound alliance with the NAACP. And I don't think this is going to help with that. And I think that uh, Brad, in basic layman's terms, has become a political liability for the church. And, and mainly, um, right. oh, go ahead. Oh, and the irony, of course, is that uh, he's getting in trouble just like uh, Randy Bott did in 2012. For saying what Mormons have been saying for decades. Yeah. Um, The other thing that came to light in the last day or so is that this isn't the first time he did the money quote where he talked about, you know, blacks getting the priesthood and then whites didn't get it till 1829. He's been saying that at least since 2020 uh, because there is video footage of him using that same uh, narrative uh, before this recent this recent time. Yes, I put it up on my Facebook page. It was in Georgia from 2020. And uh, between the time I put it on my Facebook page and tonight, that video has been taken down from YouTube. Yeah. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, Anything else from you? 
No, okay. except for this one thing, which means when I say no, I mean yes. Um, I just want to say this one thing about that statement that he made about, I think everybody knows it by now, right? You know, uh, people ask, why didn't blacks get the priesthood until 1978? And say, you're asking the wrong question. What, the question you should be asking is, there are no homosexual members of the church. <laughs> yeah, that's another guy who changes the question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so funny because, of course, I mean, it would have made Elder Bednar so proud of him. Yeah. If he had done that. It, that was one of the funny things about Bednar, which is, let's change the question. And then he makes a declarative statement. Yeah. So, but no, he says, uh, but, but the question we should be asking, what Brad Wilcox actually said is, why didn't white people and other races, why didn't whites and other races get the priesthood until 1829? And all I could think, first off, that hit me so wrong. <laughs> Believe it or not, I thought there was something wrong with that. But I thought, what is it that's hitting me so wrong about this? And it took me a while thinking about it and talking to other people before it crystallized. And I think, the, for me, the, the real problem with that is that if you're a white guy in the United States who is a leader in the LDS church with its own history of racism, it's probably not the best look to try and assume a superior victim status to black people. I was just jumping off the screen. I showed you this earlier today, but you know, I've got oh, my yes. copy of the yes. continuous atonement and there's Brad Wilcox and his signature because him and I were, this was back in 13, 2013. And I just interviewed him six months earlier or something. Uh, it was like November, September of 2012, I believe where I interviewed him. Um, That's going to be a collector's item. Yeah, no, I think it lost value over the last week, didn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, give it a few years. That Mark Hoffman stuff you got is selling for big bucks now. Look at that. Look at this that. This is driver's license. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Um, two things. One is that in St. George, Utah, this weekend, there is Thrive. And that's going on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I don't know offhand, the top of my head, what the website is. But if you type in Mormon Thrive, St. George, Utah, it'll come up. Get yourself a ticket if you're nearby or want to make the drive or the flight, and it's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, I actually won't be there, but it is quite a rock star list of people who will. So, yes, uh, John DeLynn, I think uh, Sam Young's going to be there. Natasha Helfer is going to be there. So it should be exciting. Um, the other thing too is just a, a we'd really like some help from you guys. We had an issue the last couple of days for whatever reason. Maven's YouTube account uh, was essentially closed. And she's having a lot of trouble trying to actually get a hold of a human being on the on the contact side of things to ask why and to try to get it resolved. And so if you go to the comments right now on Facebook and YouTube, I'm putting in the Twitter link uh, to get you to her page and you can uh, leave comments there. She's been told that sometimes if there's enough buzz about a problem, somebody's kind of watches social media and on Twitter and Facebook uh, they'll they'll see the conversation going on and then try to address it. And so, Maven, any thoughts from you on this? Yeah, could you guys hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. And I want to just thank everybody for their support, those that are following me on Facebook to, to find out that this happened. Um, people have asked me if I've, if I've broken any rules, and I cannot find anything that I've even come close to breaking. Um, and I, the one that was given to me was for spam or scams or deceptive content um, but I don't have any content other than just what I do with the chats here so I'm still not really sure but I, I did try the appeal process but the appeal isn't working because I just get a generic 
email back that they can't find my account. Um, and that's because they deleted it. But yet when they sent me an email saying they deleted it, they gave me a link to appeal it. But again, <laughs> when I do that, that's, it's just a circle. Um, nothing yeah. is getting through. Um, so anyway, that's the only thing left I think I have um, that I heard works is, is Twitter. I've had a few friends that don't use Twitter much kind of dust off their accounts. I created one uh, for Maven just today just to tweet that out there. So if you guys are able to, I think that's the only thing really I, I know how to do at this point. Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep working at it. And if anybody but knows. I'm still in the to, chat. It's mostly yeah. me doing the chat today. Some of you were asking where I was at and I wanted to let you know I'm here. Well, good. Is there any truth to the rumor that it might have had something to do with your members only account? Oh, no. Are you trying to, were you trying to say OnlyFans? Is that what you I guess I was. Figured out? <laughs> There's about 30 people in our in our chat group right now looking up Maven OnlyFans right now. Yeah. Sorry about that. Oh no. I do not know what you will find. So I will not be responsible for whatever <laughs> you guys look at. You'll lose the spirit, movies. everybody. Don't go. So so it, <laughs> it could just, be it could oh. be for scams and deception and you talk about Mormonism. Huh. Yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot of people who thought, and I did initially think that maybe it was somebody kind of disgruntled um, that did it. But I, the more I look into it, I, I just feel like I just have done something close enough to to catch an algorithm or a bot or something, um, and and I'm just unlucky, really. That's that's the only thing. I think it's just between me and YouTube, though. I don't think, um, yeah, I don't think there was any malicious intent behind it. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Let's hope it gets straightened out. If anybody know. knows a way to reach YouTube or, you know, somebody there, uh, we would love, uh, we'd love some help. So um, I wanted to know if so. I can make a quick comment about Brad Wilcox real, real Please. quick, and then we can get into the show. Um, the part that stood out to me the most was when he talked about his children playing church. And he said that he was concerned when his daughter started to bless her stuffed animals. I think that was the line. Bless the sacrament. Um, uh, oh, was it the sacrament? Or okay, yeah, because yeah. they were playing yeah. church. Yeah, and I remember that was. I mean, and that was played as a as a laugh line. And I just remember feeling really sad because I remember when I was that little girl and I was blissfully unaware of the the inequality of the small role that I was uh, um, the, going to be, you know, put into over time. I just couldn't help but feel sad for her. You know, she's yeah. just doing something she thought was good, and she'd seen modeled and. You know, she didn't know yet. She didn't nope. know. Nope. So she, but she would find so out she soon. A little spoonful of shame and she did. told not to do yep. it. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thanks, Unfortunate. Guys. Okay. Sounds good. Good point. Thanks for I'm adding to that. Catch up on the chat. Cool. Um, so Bill you know, real, you're in charge of tonight's show. You've got a wonderful, a wonderful subject to talk about. I, we've already burned up 20 minutes talking about Brad Wilcox, but how could we not really? Right. So uh, tonight, what I wanted to talk about was something that happened, I don't know, about a week ago or so at BYU, and I'll put it up here on the screen. Let me uh, put there. Yeah, there's so, something about professors or something. Yeah, so I had a uh, professor at BYU uh, reach out. Ooh, sorry about that, Maven. I didn't mean to bump that. You can put it back up. Um, I had a professor at BYU reach out to me and say, hey, Bill, just so you know, they're trying to work in a policy change. And the policy change uh, is the wording for all CES teachers that are members of the church. Now, if you're not a member of the church and you're teaching at a church school or um, some other role within CES, which I 
wouldn't be a seminary teacher, obviously, but some of the role within CES, they are now trying to make it. And it's part of Elder Holland's whole addressing the fact that the teacher's got to stay in line. The church behind the scenes has been trying to figure out how's it going to do that. And so the one thing it did was it changed the policy of teachers and their behavior. And so um, the wording, the old wording versus the new wording, I, I don't want to get into it. They just kind of talk about it, but they're talking about be holding and being worthy to hold a temple recommend is the new wording. The, the new policy is to hold and be worthy to hold a current temp, temple recommend. So you have to have one and you have to always be worthy of it. And remember, it only takes one call from Salt Lake to a bishop or a stake president to begin to have that worthiness beyond thin ice. The old policy was, quote, to accept as a condition of employment the standards of conduct consistent with qualifying for temple privileges. And my friend, he's he's a, a mole professor I have on the inside at BYU. We'll call him Elder Dykes for anonymity. Elder Dykes told me that under that condition, I could tell my bishop I qualify, but am not interested in having a recommend and it wouldn't affect my employment, unquote. And so you can see that by having uh, that kind of wording, I think it does two things. I think it, A, gives more control to Salt Lake over local leaders and the CES staff. Those leaders have stewardship for as worthiness issues arise in an employee's behavior, a.k.a. apostate teachings at BYU or in seminary. The second is imagine the pressure to stay in line that this adds. Is it significant? I don't know. Maybe not versus the old wording because the old wording still had some pressure there. But it absolutely feels like additional undue influence by requiring somebody to have a temple recommend. BYU is simply looking for just cause, a.k.a. breaking the worthiness standard, even if on a loophole that involves abusive underhanded methods intended to manipulate people into obedience and loyalty over conscience. Uh, your thoughts on the this policy change that just happened uh, at BYU RFM? Well, I think the church is showing that it's very, very concerned about what the professors are teaching, and they want to bring them more and more in line with what the owners of the church of the of BYU, i.e., the leadership of the church, want them to be teaching. And so, this seems to me just to be another step in that direction. They're very concerned about lots of the professors and reports that they're getting from their spies and their um, voice automated tape recorders, which are hidden in strategic locations in some of the classrooms. Um, they're very concerned about that and they're trying to crack down on it as much as they can. Uh, I get the feeling that the more they tighten their grip on these things, it's like the grains of sand analogy, right? The more they tighten their grip, the more the sand will run out from their fingers. Yeah. I even I got up on the screen right now, RFM, the Church Board of Education and Board of Trustees. We sometimes in our heads try to separate, or at least some people do, BYU from the church. But when you look at the Board of Trustees, it's almost the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. I mean, you have President Russell M. Nelson, chairman, President Dallin H. Oaks, first vice chairman, President Henry B. Eyring, second vice chairman. So the first presidency is the Board of Education for the church, uh, schools, and CES programs, right? I wonder if this is the only corporation that has a first and second vice chairman. Yeah, you can't have people being embarrassed because they're too far down a ladder in, in title, huh? Yeah, they're not just board members, these guys. 
No, no. And then the board, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, Elder D. Todd Christofferson, members of the Quorum of the Twelve. You got Paul Johnson, who's a 70. They skipped Mike, Ballard. They did skip Ballard. Uh, he's too busy, I guess. Yes. Uh, Michael Ringwood, uh, Bishop Gerald Cosset, who's in, who's a general authority. Sister Jean Bingham, who's a general authority. Sister Bonnie Cordon, who has never had any wealth, if you remember. I, I'm not sure she, that women can be general authorities. I think oh, they can no, no, be general no, right, officers. But, Thank you. Uh, they can't. <laughs> and I don't think they get paid either. No, but the one thing that women can do that men can't do in the church, Bill, do you know what that is? They can go to the temple without having the priesthood. Boom, baby. Look at that. Women Tender are not mercies. only equal to men in the church, they are actually treated better than yeah. men in the church. That was another clip from Brad Wilcox's um, show last Sunday, for those of you who aren't aware, you know, that one or two people in the world who don't know that already. Yeah. What you do is you take some way that somebody's marginalized and then you just re-say it in a way that makes it sound like they have extra privilege. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, they were very concerned. They made sure that they put the women at the bottom, but then they put a guy beneath them just to show that they weren't putting them completely in the back of the bus. You can't have them above uh, Bishop Gerald Cause. That just can't happen. Not happening. I don't no. know who Stephen Lund is, but he's probably pretty upset about that. Yeah. He's, I had yeah. something I wanted to jump off of, a uh, riff off of um, RFM. The idea, I, this reminded me of a book I read long, long time ago. It was called Upper Road Slowly. And it's about um, a girl in early, the kind of pioneer times America, not Mormon, but um, there was a girl in her class that might have been uh, maybe a little handicapped or just or just unhygienic or something. Um, but the teacher was trying to make, um, you know, all the school kids be nice to her, but they hated eating with her at lunch. And so there's just this part of the book where in order to <clears throat> get away from it, they crown her the queen and they tell her because she's the queen, she sits in the middle of the circle and all of the kids would sit around her while they ate their lunches. Um, but she would be in the middle. And so it, that's, it, that's when people do that, I, I always keep going back to the scene of, of that book uh, where they did that. And that's kind of how it feels sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's funny how we sometimes take people's problems and make it sound like they should be grateful. And it's just a way to silence the, the criticism or silence the dissent that's going on around that person or that issue. And it, it's deeply unhealthy. Um, so this whole thing with the policy change, RFM, it led me to a conversation with my buddy Chris Bloxham at Family Pond, and we were talking about the modernity crisis at BYU in 1911. And so I wanted to spend some time talking about that, and then we'll come back in the end and talk a little more about this uh, change at BYU in the modern moment. Um, any thoughts from you before I jump into kind of the beginning data here with the uh, with the BYU modernity thing in 1911. No, please do, because, you know, this is a, a segment of church history that is seldom commented on. In 1911, I mean, there's a whole swath of time where we don't learn anything about what was going on in the church during this period of time. and certainly not the controversial issues, but what happened on the Brigham Young University campus in 1911 was so explosive. I mean, I don't know if there's been anything before or since that has happened that was this controversial although BYU may be heading into another such situation with the gay issue on campus. Yeah, it's it's getting there because you can feel the students in the modern moment are feeling it's it's safer than maybe it's ever been to push back. 
And the church is trying to stop that, and it's trying to put its foot down. But there's a lot of brave uh, students at BYU that are, you know, lighting up the the Y with rainbow colors, um, drawing chalk on the sidewalks outside the the campus. Um, it, it, it is interesting to kind of watch all this happen. But if you go back to 19, the early 1900s, what we end up having is in 1907, uh, then BYU. Uh, president George H. Brimhall, uh, he began hiring a new group of faculty to increase the academic reputation of the school. His goal was to include in his faculty the best scholars of the church. And Brimhall was 55 years old at the time. So in 1907, he starts off that process by hiring Joseph Peterson, who will be the head, I believe, of the psychology department. And Joseph Peterson was the very first PhD on the faculty of BYU and its history. Uh, In 1907, later on in the year, he also uh, hired uh, Henry Peterson, which was Joseph Peterson's brother, and he is the head of the College of Education at at BYU. That's what he's hired to do. Then in 1908 and 1909, he hires another set of brothers. It's uh, Ralph uh, Chamberlain and William Chamberlain. So I'm going to put these up on on the screen so people can see these. So... That's George Brimhall, and uh, let me go down here. Oh, I don't know if it's going to let me do it this way. Maven, if could you want to put yours up on the screen? Will that be easy enough? Perfect. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go back to Brimhall. So that's so the here's Brimhall. President. Yep, He's responsible George. for hiring these guys. Yep. And then in 1907, we'll go to the next slide. The next one is Joseph uh, Peterson. Psychology department. Next one is Henry Peterson, his brother. College of Education. Uh, next one is Ralph Chamberlain. Uh, biology department. And then the last one in 1909, uh, William Chamberlain, uh, head of the philosophy department. Now, these were devout Mormons, RFM. They, they weren't non-members. They went out and they got active, faithful uh, Latter-day Saints but they, but these four were intentionally sought out to bring the church's college approach into modernity, including increasing the intellectual atmosphere of the university and the community. And this led to these four uh, facilitating discussions on campus, debates on campus. One of the topics they tap- tackled was evolution in the Bible, and they attempted to convey that evolutionary ideas in Mormon theology were not mutually exclusive but rather complementary. And there's a great article written by Richard Sherlock, and I believe this is a Sunstone article, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there were some cool things that were in here that I'll kind of pick out as we go through the the conversation. But um, it starts off with this quote. It says, work hard, learn all that you can, but don't change. And that was the quote, like, in other words, the idea is like, go get all the education you can, but don't change your testimony. Don't rearrange how you believe in the church. Don't think about all these things differently. Um, it talks about how the campus was stirring with enthusiasm infused by these earnest young professors. They were doing a hell of a job. They, they are going out and they're really interacting with the students in such a way that the students, and it becomes obvious from some of the data later on, the students really fell in love with these four guys and really found the curriculum to have suddenly got exciting. Um, any thoughts from you on this kind of first little setup for the story? Right. Well, the, what's going on in the background and the whole uh, context for this 
is that in religion, there's not one but two massive controversies that are sweeping the nation. The first is Darwinian evolution, which is becoming more and more of a perceived threat to Christianity and the account of creation that they adopted a long time ago from Genesis, right? right. So that's huge. And uh, it's only going to be 1925 when the Scopes trial, the monkey trial that everybody knows about, right? I hope you know about it. Inherit the Wind, great movie. Go watch it if you want. It's got Gene Kelly and Spencer Tracy in it. Anyway, that's going on. And, of course, one of these individuals is a professor of biology. And so this has grown to the point where um, basically everybody who is educated in universities is being taught this because it has become established to the point where everybody in the universities understands that this is a very, very uh, likely theory to be true, i.e. evolution. And you'll play into that, I know, with one of these professors and things they wrote. The other thing that's going on at the same time is higher criticism of the Bible. And basically what that means is a movement, and I think it started in Germany, like all good things start in Germany, but it came across the ocean and became implanted here. And this is something David Bakavoy has written about extensively. But higher criticism means looking at the Bible as a text. And usually going along in its train is the idea that the ancient stories in the Bible, particularly those probably from the Pentateuch with the creation account, the flood, the Tower of Babel, all the stuff with Moses, that those are all legends and did not really happen. And so these professors are trying to teach this at BYU and chaos ensues. Yeah. So Ralph Chamberlain, for instance, um, Early Hebrew legends, as you're pointing to, Chamberlain described the Tower of Babel story as a legend created by the Hebrews to explain the plurality of languages and people in the world. By the way, he nailed it, um, right? So uh, he drew a sharp distinction between history and legend, for history countenances only such reports as are verifiable. Unverifiable, the early Hebrew legends could not be understood as literal historical reports, but they were useful as myths, which explained the Hebrew view of the world. He said, quote, only the childish and immature mind can lose by learning that much in the Old Testament is political, or I'm sorry, poetical, and that some of the stories are not true historically. And so that's Ralph Chamberlain, one of the four professors that we're talking about. But the, these guys... They, they were drawing crowds and it wasn't that they were just coming into classrooms and just saying like, this is the way it is. They were allowing conversation. They were allowing debates. It was, it was letting both sides get their say in and giving a chance for the truth to kind of rise up to the surface. Um, and then William Chamberlain, uh, George Howison at Berkeley. See here, at, let's me see. It's, it's this, it says at a sacrament meeting in 1910, William Chamberlain, address the need to look at the Bible as wisdom and parable rather than historical fact. Using the book of Jonah as an example, he said that regarding the book as a parable does away with the need of believing the fish story as fact. It also places beyond the reach of petty critics other stories in the book, 
used merely for purposes of illustration. He's actually using this as a faith-building argument, that if you believe in God and believe in uh, the restoration and also accept these stories as myth and not literal, then your testimony can withstand when criticism comes in that is informed and explains to you that there's no way these stories could be legitimate, uh, such as the Tower of Babel story or the Jonah and the Whale story. And hence, your faith wouldn't be as easily, um, wouldn't be as brittle, and it wouldn't be as fragile, and it wouldn't be disrupted as easily. And it seems as though, I don't know if we'll get into it in this episode or not, but it seems as though that actually held up. The students seem to have had a much more vibrant testimony as this was going on. Any thoughts from you? Well, yes, uh, that uh, I don't want to get ahead of you, but of course, in 1911, this all comes to a head and the powers that be decide that uh, action needs to be taken and the students pushed back against it with predictable results. Yeah. So what we end up having is uh, Horace H. Cumming. He is the superintendent of the church schools. That's his title, superintendent of the church schools. And and by the way, largely self-educated, which often in these these tensions of modernity versus old orthodoxy it is usually the folks who are less educated in those specific areas who tend to bring the orthodoxy to the table and don't know how to make room uh for updated views because it makes them so uncomfortable and in mormonism you're taught that discomfort could be the devil deceiving you it could be a loss of the spirit. And so anytime you're in a conversation as a believing member with somebody who's posing information that makes you uncomfortable, it's very easy in Mormonism to dismiss that and write it off. And Horace seemed to be very uncomfortable with what was going on at BYU, so much so that he went and spent, I think, uh, nine days there uh, at BYU University talking uh, to President Brimhall meeting with these four instructors, sitting in on classes, talking to students out uh, around campus and trying to get a feel and then wrote a letter back called the Cummings Report. This was January 21st, 1911. Uh, he writes a letter back to church headquarters, essentially to the the general uh, board of education, which is the church leadership, and lays out what he perceives. And he names some good things too, but you can see why the brethren begin to get very uncomfortable. Yeah, I went back and I actually printed off and read about four of the papers that these individuals, these professors. Yeah, please talk about those. Oh, well, I, thank you. I don't want to distract from the no, narrative no, no. right I, now. That's not, just, that's, that's not part of what I did, and I would like people to get a feel for what's in there. Well, there's a okay, I'm just going to talk about generally right now, only because uh, I don't want to get into the weeds too much. I will say that what they're doing is they're not simply, and this is in the, the blue and white, which I'm taking it was a BYU publication. Um, yeah, it's called the blue and the white, I think, was the name of it back then. So it's being published in BYU studies. These guys are obviously very intelligent. They're obviously very well educated. And what they're trying to do is they're not just saying, okay, this is evolution and it's true right? Or this is higher criticism and it's true. They're trying to do it in such a way as to make it compatible with LDS faith. And in fact, one of the papers talks about evolution as being something that helps increase faith in God and even in the resurrection. 
And I read that one this afternoon. It was a very interesting argument, but I'm just telling you that to give you the idea of what they're trying to do. They're trying to take these things that are accepted, that are coming to be established as scientific fact or literary fact or historical fact, whatever you want to call it, and making it okay for members of the church to believe higher criticism is correct, to believe evolution is correct, to not have it uh, hurt their faith in the church or in the gospel, but actually to use it to try and increase their faith in the gospel. So I see them doing that on the one hand. On the other hand, there are certain things that they say that I could see would be raising the eyebrows of the leadership. And there's a number of those things, like I said, uh, referring to in the nicest way possible, but it comes across pretty clearly. The story of the Tower of Babel, it's a legend. It's not only a legend, it's actually uh, an accretion of or a development of older legends. And he's probably thinking of Babylon there. But yeah, it's not just a legend. It was borrowed and then elaborated upon by the ancient Hebrews and then put into uh, Genesis. So I'm sure that that did not go over very big. There's another person who talks about the fact that, okay, he talks about truth. Excuse me here. I've got too many wires going. It's getting in the way. I printed this off. I feel the same way, but take your time, my friend. Oh, okay. Well, I'll probably, I'll just paraphrase it. But he's talking about truth. And we know where truth comes from in the LDS church, right? Right? Truth comes from the prophets. Yeah. It comes from outside of us, i.e. the guy at the head of the church. Yeah. Well, what he says at the end of his first paragraph here, it's called the early Hebrew conception of the universe. So that has to do with the higher criticism and basically talking about how it was that they conceived the cosmos, you know, with the flat earth, the pillars of heaven, the firmament, the waters above the firmament, the waters below the earth, which is flat, right? And that whole thing, which is pretty commonly understood, I think, today, maybe it's not, but uh, I don't think it was as commonly understood back then, 100 years ago, but he's going to talk about that in the, this paper, but he it starts off talking about truth. This is 1909, he publishes this. He says, at best... Human knowledge is provisional and must remain throughout provisional. In other words, human knowledge can never really arrive at the answer. It always has to be provisional and open to being changed based upon additional information or facts coming to light. But here's the real money quote, and I'll bet it was highlighted by the leaders of the church 100 years ago the same way I highlighted it in my printed copy. No man really possesses the truth. I'm sorry, did you hear that? No man really possesses the truth. That runs counter to, with a twinkle in his eye, you do what the prophet tells you, he can't lead the church astray, right? Yes, and shortly thereafter, he says, truth then cannot be given to us from without, which is an old way of saying from outside. Yeah, it's all happening right? inside you, isn't it? Truth then cannot be given to us from outside or without. We attain it. Make it ours only as we work it out and build it up within our minds. Mm. So they said a lot of very good things and a lot of very appropriate things, I think, and helpful things. But I think that it was not seen this way by leaders of the church. I know it was not seen that way by leaders of the church. Are you muted, Bill? Sorry about, sorry about that. We'll get into a couple of the students' responses, which kind of show, demonstrate what you're talking about. When Horace Cumming 
comes to the campus for nine days. He ends up writing this report, sending it back to the brethren. And he lays out some things. I want to read a few of these. So um, he says, the following are some of the points of information gained there during his nine days on campus. Number one, about two years ago, when some of the most radical changes in theological views were first introduced, it caused a great disturbance in the minds of both the pupils and the old style teachers there. But many have gradually adjusted their views to the new thought and feel that they have gained much by the change. Many of the teachers and students are unable to accept them, however, though practically all the college students whom I met, except one or two return missionaries, were most zealous in defending and propagating the new views. Number two, it was the unanimous opinion that interest in theological work had never been more universal or more intense in the school than it is now. That sounds like a good thing, although... Maybe, maybe more universal and like, hey, we have to save everyone and maybe Mormonism isn't the perfect solution for everything. Um, yeah, but he reaction, seems to in, go ahead. I was just going to say reactions against the perceived threat do tend to generate an increased interest in theology. Yeah. Number three, all express firm faith in the living oracles. So he is, a, he, so Horace is acknowledging that everyone he talks to has not lost their testimony in prophets. Um, number four, all believe in tithing, missionary work, and the ordinances of the gospel and appear to be determined to do their duty in these things. Um, he names another one too, but then he goes into, he says, some of the matters which impressed me most unfavorably may be enumerated as follows. Uh, his second one, he says, the Bible is treated as a collection of myths, folklore, dramas, literary productions, history, and some inspiration. Its miracles are mostly fables or accounts of natural events recorded by a simple people who injected the miraculous elements into them as most ignorant people do when things strange to them occur. A few concrete examples of this he names. A, the flood was only a local inundation of unusual extent. By the way, Fair Mormon espouses that now, right? Yeah, I think Hugh Nibley picked up on that as well. I remember reading him saying something about that. In other words, maybe at least on some level, these guys were right. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole deal is, is that we've got this idea of a flood. It's in the scriptures. And we talk about it being universal, like this, uh, or at least global, like the, um, the scriptures do in Genesis. And uh, eventually people start realizing that's not possible. That didn't happen. It could not have happened. And then they start looking for um, alternate expl explanations like, oh, it was, a, it was a limited flood, but it was a really bad flood. But the people who were there thought it did cover the whole earth because they couldn't see the whole earth and see that the entire earth was not covered. They just assumed it was. Strangely, Jesus mentions the flood in Third Nephi. Does he? He does. Just FYI. Okay. Uh, the number B or letter B, and I love the way that Horace is wording these. I really do think he's making an attempt to word things favorably. He's not just going and narking these guys out. I think he's trying to be objective, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, he says, the confusion of tongues came about by the scattering of families descended from Noah. When they became too numerous for the valley, they originally occupied. After a generation or two, having no written language, their speech changed each tribes in a different way. There is no, there is nothing sudden or miraculous in this change. He says, 
Another one, Christ's temptation is only an allegory of what takes place in each of our souls. There is no personal devil to tempt us. Um, E, John the Revelator was not translated. He died in the year 96. So you can see that these guys are, uh, these guys are teaching some things that would run counter to orthodoxy. And, and you can see why the brethren would be uncomfortable. He finishes up. He, um, he says a few others. He says all truth. This is what the, he says, these four guys and others at BYU are teaching all truths change as we change. Nothing is fixed or reliable. We grow or change our attitude toward any truth. That truth changes. I think you were mentioning something along those same lines. Um, he says, visions and revelations are mental suggestions. The objective reality of the presence of the Father and the Son in Joseph Smith's first vision is questioned. So you can see that would cause some alarm. Uh, another one, in thus robbing the scriptures, both ancient and modern, of the greater part of their divinity, in limiting the wonders of the Creator to the necessity of confining his operation to the natural laws. Um, known to man. And then he, he wraps up. There's three little parts here at the end of his letter. He says, there seems to be a struggle still going on between their new views and their old ones. And at times their words are full of light. And at other times and on the same subjects, they would be full of darkness. And I think that idea of full of darkness, it really is. We were talking about truth being internal to you. Darkness really is subjective. And when I perceive, when I was a believing Mormon and somebody confronted me with anti-Mormon lies, which turned out to be the future gospel topic essays, I dismissed them because I was uncomfortable. I knew to assign a story to that, that I was, the Holy Ghost wasn't present. I knew that anytime there was disagreement, that contention is of the devil. Um, and, and I knew that because I was uncomfortable I was able to put some distance between me and those, those other narratives and dismiss them as not really being true. They're just propaganda or lies. Um, and then he says two other things. He goes, I presume that being the superintendent of the church schools, more complaints of this kind reach me than come to any of the other brethren. And I may therefore be unduly impressed with the danger which exists. See, again, I think he's being fair and needs to be remedied in our Provo school. I do not wish to magnify these conditions, but cannot help feeling deep anxiety that the soundness of doctrine, the sweetness of the spirit, and the general faithfulness that has from the beginning characterized the products of that school should not diminish, much less give way to error and disbelief. It struck me as I was reading his report um, it struck me that whenever leaders hold up old, nonsensical, absurd views, whether it be the Tower of Babel, whether it be 2,000 stripling warriors and not one of them died, whether it be millions on the Hill Rama, whether it be a transoceanic voyage, whether it be seven barges with stones, um, or eight barges, I guess, with stones, whether, like, anytime somebody says something absurd in Mormonism, it is allowed to pass. It's allowed to go ahead and do its thing because it doesn't hurt faith. And anytime someone comes in with an intelligent perspective that is data-driven, that's rational and logical, it is seen as the enemy 
And I think up until this modern moment that we're talking right now on February 9th, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, He says, the last thing he says here is they seem to feel they have a mission to protect the young from the errors of their parents. And one student said to me, I could make my dear mother weep in a minute by telling her how I have changed my religious views. Yet he had only accepted that which he thought was far ahead of what his mother had taught him. In other words, it's rational and logical, so I changed my mind. Um, the poor mother did not have the capacity of understanding his new light and rejoicing with him in it, so he kept it a secret from her. The foregoing is respectfully submitted in the hope that a wise and effectual way may be decided upon to bring into harmony the theological teachings in our church schools and prevent the dissemination of doubt and false doctrine. By the way, it's when we're resistant to modern adaptation and modern data coming in, it really is holding these old views and then people discovering that there was another truth all along that actually ends up being the thing that hurts faith. And so I find it odd that he acknowledges that everybody seems to be hanging on to their testimony. They seem to be believing in the living oracles. They seem to continue to believe in tithing. And yet he sees, maybe because he sees it in himself, he sees some risk of people losing their faith if we give people rational ways to think about spirituality. Yes. Well, there are certainly obvious things that you've already mentioned in that summation, which would give cause to any church leader, I think, looking at it from their perspective, which is uh, what no Satan, excuse me, that cannot stand. I mean, he even has his own part in the temple endowment. He is a very, very real character in Mormon theology. I mean, where does the uh, the grand council in heaven go without uh, a pre-mortal Satan there to cause the action to unfold the way it does? Um, I mean, he's here. He's tempting mankind. He's got a third of the host of heaven as his demons. Yeah, saying that he does not exist is not going to go over well. And neither is, frankly, the idea about the Tower of Babel being legends and Adam and Eve being legends. I mean, they are they have been literalized to such an extent in Mormon theology that I can see why leadership in the church would be concerned about assigning them to legendary status. Just a just a little side note, I did an episode back in 2017, number 275 of Mormon Discussion, Satan, the Opposition in All Things, and uh, I'm going to just see how long it is. 35, in 35 minutes, I completely uh, logically walk away from the belief of Satan because it's absurd to believe in him via a logical argument. So if anybody wants to understand that they're really, these guys, what impresses me, RFM, is here we are in the first decade of, of 1900. And um, I used to think inside my head that we have the access to the internet. We've got, you know, modern college education and modern educational system, K through 12 and, Today, people are smart and informed and they can think things through. I'm deeply impressed with the fact that if I go back in time, there are people just as intelligent, just as rational, 
who are wrestling with the same kinds of ideas and figuring out the same kinds of conclusions without access to the internet, without a modern college uh, information and education, without a modern schooling system, they, they somehow still figure stuff out. People just aren't dumb no matter what age you go in. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And um, in many ways, the past is actually not a foreign country because fundamentally they do things, they do things the same way there. Yeah, they do. They do things the same way there. People are people. People are people. And yes, maybe we learn new things and those new things help us adapt even further. But but people back in the early 1900s were able to think rationally and logically. Some of them weren't, but some of them were. And it may not be all that different in terms of how people thought and how they deconstructed and reconstructed ideas, uh, even though, again, uh, more than 100 years have passed. So I, you may be taking it uh, for granted that everybody in the audience knows what happened to these four professors. Yeah, we need to get to that, don't we? Um, so uh, the church ends up, so these guys, essentially uh, Brimhall ends up siding with Horace Cummings and they in t- both together side with the brethren who end up kind of coming down really hard. And, uh, it is this first presidency of Joseph F. Smith, John R. Winder, and Anthony H. Lund. And this is happening at the same time. And by the way, I, I got to believe these are all interconnected. But in, is it 1911? When the... Origin when it, and Destiny of Man? No, that's 1909. 1909. Yeah. So as this stir is happening across the nation and at BYU, Joseph F. Smith, I forget who he asked to write it. It was... Um, I think you mentioned Orson F. Whitney. Yeah, Orson F. That's it. Orson F. Whitney to draft an official statement of the origin of man. Um, And then these three men, along with the Board of Education of BYU, which is, again, pretty much church leadership, it was decided that these men were out of harmony with the brethren and that Horace H. Cummings um, offered the Petersons and Ralph Chamberlain a choice. Alter your teachings. You can take down your podcast. Right. Or lose your job. And privately, Joseph B. Keeler told Ralph Chamberlain he could stay. His curriculum must have been pretty vanilla. But he refused as the Petersons weren't given the same offer. And Brimhall, there's um, Brimhall, this is a quote from George Brimhall. He says, there are some people who predict the death of the college if these men go. I am ready to say that if the life of the college depends upon any number of men out of harmony with the brethren who preside over the church, then it is time for the college to die. And Ralph when Chamber- I read that quote, when What's you that? read me that quote, I think on the phone, it immediately made me think of Elder Holland from this past August. Yeah, it, it was almost that same language, wasn't it? Yes, if the if this school has to lose its accreditation over the gay issue, then we're prepared to do that. Yeah. Yeah, again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Ralph Chamberlain responded during the meeting between these four teachers in the school administration, which again included six church leaders. He said, if you can bring me out one student whose faith I have injured in Mormonism, I will bring you five that you through your narrowness have driven out of the church. Yeah, and and as you can see, Often, it is the brethren's reluctance to be honest 
the brethren's reluctance to be transparent, the brethren's uh, inability to be forthright and to lay all the information on the table. It's those kinds of things that seem to be really hurting people's faith when they discover the truth juxtaposed against what, what LDS leaders are teaching. Um, he says, I never gave a public lecture on evolution until I had consulted you talking to George Brimhall until I consulted you as to whether it would be all right. You urged me to do it. Now, why have you changed suddenly? And then Brimhall could only feeble, feebly joke. He goes, quote, well, I'll tell you, Brother Chamberlain, I know which side my bread's buttered on. And I thought that was a great line, you know? Mm-hmm. In other words, I know where I get paid. I know who signs my checks. I know who, which, which side I want to please when it comes down to it. So sorry, buddy, but you're out of luck. Yes, and that's Elder Holland to uh, the Maxwell Institute from a couple of years ago. If the decision, if it comes down, you teachers, you professors, to where you've got to decide to adhere to your academic standards or the brethren, then you need to be prepared to choose the brethren. That's the side of the bread that's buttered for you. It almost makes me wonder if Holland had familiarized himself with this story uh, as he was formulating his thoughts in that moment. I think he's a time traveler. He he might be. Um, and I love this picture of the first presidency. John R. Winder doesn't get enough press as far as I'm concerned, because I never knew that Santa Claus was part of the first presidency. <laughs> uh, it looks like he should be working at Macy's. Yeah. Joseph F. Smith ended up dying of the Spanish flu, right? From uh, Yeah from that whole uh, pandemic that happened. But, you know, I can only imagine these guys drinking their sacrament water or wine and all the floaties and stuff from their beard. And, oh my uh, gosh. Yes. You know, they only realized that, that uh, Joseph F Smith died from the Spanish flu uh, when he passed away because of his final words. Do you know what those were? Uh-uh. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> Unwilling to change their teachings, the Petersons and Ralph Chamberlain left the university in 1911. Mm-hmm. And um, let me uh, put us back up there. University in 1911, while William remained for another five years, resigning in 1916. I don't know what happened there. He stayed and then eventually got fed up. Um, I, want, I, I wish I could go back in time and ask him. Do you wish you would have left with your three buddies, your three, your brother and your two amigos, or are you glad you stayed another five years only to learn that it wasn't feasible and you had to go anyway? I know. And there are so many variables that we don't know, whether it's uh, finances, family needs uh, that have to be met. Yeah. There's could be good reasons. Yeah. And I'm sure that whatever his reasons were, he thought were good. Uh, but, but the students, they loved him. I mean, there's like 114 students in all of BYU at the time, but over 80% of them, Bill, signed a petition to the leadership, at least of the university, which is the church, saying, hey, don't fire these guys. And it was a very nice, long petition, very well drawn out. And I thought they said a lot of good things. I wanted to talk to you about the, the bullet points that they had, only because not only are they intelligent, I was actually kind of surprised at some of the things they were saying to the church leadership, but... I think that a lot of the things they said then have equal applicability today. So the first thing they said is uh, no church is big enough to ignore science. 
That's pretty good, huh? Yeah. Number two, freedom of investigation is requisite to progress. And higher learning. Yes. Yeah. That's what they came to the university for. And they were quite serious about getting their education. They weren't there just for the toga parties. Yeah. Um, if the Mormon gospel is true, it will triumph over error without artificial aid. And if it isn't, it might need artificial aid. Or at least artificial respiration. Yeah. Maybe. CPR. Jeez, <laughs> quickly. We're going to lose them. Here's another one, and I had to look this word up. Not theology, but this is the line. Theology, not science, is the church's métier. And I had to look that up. Do you know what métier, métier is? Mm. It means trade, profession, or occupation. I sort of got what it meant from the context, but that's what it meant. Uh, theology is the church's métier, not science, which is a nice way of saying 100 years ago, to the church leaders, stay in your no own lane. lane. Mm -hmm. That's what they're saying. Your job's theology, not science. Yeah, um, and if, if a religion hijacks the curriculum in order to maintain its theology safely, then it's doing those students a deep injustice. And they, they hit on that too. These guys are very, very articulate. And I'm just talking about the students now. Um. Here's another one. Evolution, although causing students to view Mormon doctrine in a different light, nevertheless accounts for more actual facts than any other hypothesis. Yeah. And isn't that the whole goal of college is to learn the best way to look at and organize data so that you... Um, come out with the best conclusions possible. Hence, you live out the rest of your life being the most rational, logical being that you can be. Yeah. Yeah. They go on, and I'll try and clip, clip these off pretty quickly. But if these professors go, none of like scholarship and like sympathy with Mormonism can be found. You're not going to get guys, or excuse me, you're not going to get professors of this caliber and education to teach at BYU, who, number one, are sympathetic to Mormons in the first place, and number two, believe something other than evolution and higher criticism of the Bible. Right. And that seemed like a very good argument to me. Right. You can't both have the best educators available and teach orthodoxy. Right. So you shouldn't be letting them go. But they did anyway. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that, Bill. Um, they did. Their removal will hurt schools, the school's credit in Eastern universities, which it did. Um, students would be compelled to look elsewhere for a complete education. Yeah. Missionaries to do effective work must be educated to cope with scientific arguments leveled at their church. Without a knowledge of evolution, they would be useless. Toleration of others' beliefs also is part of the missionary's creed. Hmm. Maybe this is a memo that we could send to Elder Wilcox. Hmm. And finally, they said the very existence of the school as a progressive institution is involved. It's very existence. Mormon, The Mormon Church, too, which was okay, apparently, to say back 100 years ago. Sorry about that. Uh, the Mormon church too will suffer if these professors go. 
and the, it did suffer. This took generations for BYU to recover from firing these four professors, which is what you do when you say you can either stop teaching uh, evolution and higher criticism, or you can go. And they all ultimately decided they were going to go. Yeah. And um, the petition, they originally uh, sent it to George Brimhall, who took it and thanked them, but didn't comment on it. Then it goes to the brethren and the brethren don't say anything at all. And then Deseret News doesn't really want to cover it. And so their only option left is to take it to the Trib. So they take it to the Salt Lake Tribune. It said publication of the student petition uh, being published in the Salt Lake Tribune brought a swift response from the Deseret News. In the school administration, notice here the, the, the deception in what they say. Uh, a news editorial reprimanded the students for rushing into print especially in a paper that could never be a friend for the students. The editorial declared that the church favored the truth. It would not suppress science or learning in a speech to the student body. Brimhall charged them to have faith in the Lord and his servants who were leading the school. In other words, we will allow higher learning. We'll allow the data. We'll allow uh, the truth to surface, but in reality, Mormonism always does what Mormonism does, which is to quiet the criticisms, to quiet the people pointing at whatever isn't adding up. And again, like you said earlier, e either stop teaching these things or uh, stop, you know, stop the podcast or lose your membership in the church. That's the route that they took. Can I just say one other thing? Uh, I'll skip a bunch of things, but uh, we're already going potentially long, but RV Chamberlain, apparently the guy who was allowed to maybe stay, but declined, he wrote some of the most um, problematic from the church's perspective articles, I think. So I'm not sure why he was being given any kind of a of grace there, but he wrote an article called some early Hebrew legends. You mentioned that this was published in the BYU paper in 1910. So the year before, and when he writes this, this is this is at the end of the article. Uh, it reminded me forcibly of the type of apologetics that John Gee and Carrie Muelstein do with regard to the Book of Abraham, and which other apologists do with regard to the Book of Mormon, but especially the Book of Abraham. And you know where it is that they they look at something in the Book of Abraham, and then they'll go over here and look at something else, and they'll they'll work very hard to draw some kind of labored connection and parallel between the two. You know what I'm talking about. So what they've come up with is a handful of strained parallels between the ancient world and the book of Abraham. And that suffices as their proof that the book of Abraham itself is ancient. Now, these are brief things that I'll read, but here is something. Listen, listen to this. It doesn't talk about the book of Abraham specifically, but listen to this principle. A person setting out specially to find resemblances between the stories and legends of any two peoples is likely to find them and perhaps duly to exaggerate them and to, I, that might've been unduly. There was a little bit of problem with the way that this came out, uh, the way it was on the internet and perhaps unduly to exaggerate them and to read into them much that is wholly unwarranted. 
So basically saying, if you want to look at any two peoples or a book of scripture in an ancient world to find connections or resemblances, you're going to find them. But a lot of times it's going to be things that are exaggerated and they're going to be read into them much that is unholy, that is wholly unwarranted. And I thought I could not think of a better description of Book of Abraham Apologetics. And then at the end of this uh, next paragraph, this is just one sentence, which continues the idea. Correspondence in myths and legends of peoples must be both extensive and detailed to establish community of source or of physical contact. So basically, he's ruling everything that John Key and Kerry Muelstein have done off the table. It has to be extensive. It has to be detailed in order to establish this connection and not just this kind of stuff that you're doing with a handful of strained connections and parallels like you guys are doing. Mm. Um, so these four professors end up gone. Essentially, I think a couple are fired, one resigns, and then one works for a few more years, and he resigns as well. And we're going to get back to the modern moment, but I wanted to wrap up with a th some things that came out in this conversation or these all this research on this 1911 modernity crisis. Uh, you mentioned the 80%. 80% of the students, the Salt Lake Tribune uh, stated that as many as 80% of the faculty sympathized with the Petersons and Chamberlain. When Joseph F. Smith was told that a number of Provo merchants and others favoring the teachers had withdrawn their patronage from the white and blue, he spoke up immediately and said that the first presidency wanted no change in the paper's policy and said he would instruct Zion Savings Bank to keep the paper out of financial difficulties. Mm. Isn't that interesting? The mm. president of the church, because everybody was siding with these four professors and the students, mm -hmm. and they were withdrawing their uh, patronage of the white and blue. They're pulling their ads, baby. The prophet of the church goes to a bank Mm -hmm. And tells that bank what to do. And what to do is you will fund the white and blue regardless of if they're in the red or not. Yep. That seems strange, doesn't it? Um, Smith also admonished his son, Andrew, a student at the high school adjoining BYU, quote, for my sake, my son, as well as your own, eschew the Petersons and Chamberlain's evolution and all such things. On the 13th of March, over 100 undergraduates, again, you pointed out there's only 114 there. Over 100 undergraduates assembled on campus in mass rally to stand by their teachers. The students distributed the petition, and we talked about that. Um, next, Brimhall discussing the issue with Reed Smoot. Throughout the following weeks, Brimhall was left to deal as best he could with the dissatisfied faculty and students. In mid-May, he wrote again to Smoot, quote, I would be in perfect misery if I were not in harmony with those over me. I can stand it to be out of harmony with others. My policy has been to follow the interest of our faculty and also follow the interest of the student body, but I cannot be expected to follow either of the latter unless they are in perfect harmony with those above me. Smoot, the, the, the politician, replied supportively, if the time ever comes that it is impossible for me to be in harmony with my presiding officer, I will quickly resign if it involves any great principle affecting my conscience or my religious beliefs. 
Joseph Keeler, who was a counselor to Brim Hall in the BYU presidency, later asked, quote, Brother Chamberlain, why can't you teach this subject the way we want it taught instead of the way you're teaching it? Chamberlain replied, quote, I'm so constituted that I can't teach what I don't believe. And then lastly, following what the What a controversy, great response, by the way. What's that? What a great response. I am so constituted that I cannot teach what I don't believe. Amen. How can you argue with that? Yeah. I wonder at times if the brethren are so constituted. Hmm. Following the controversy, many faculty and students were reluctant to discuss some, quote, matters of scientific and sociological value for fear of losing their positions and receiving the boycott of the church. Others began asking if there were any other doctrines of the church which were inconsistent with commonly accepted conclusions of science. School trustees approved a new teaching contract, <clears throat> a new teaching contract in October 1911, which required loyalty to church authorities as a condition of employment. Mm. Now, back to the modern moment. Now, the way my buddy in the as a professor at BYU said it, he said all new instructors in the CES uh, the, the BYU or other positions within CES will have to sign in under this new wording that they will have to hold and be worthy to hold a temple recommend. But he said the, the teachers who are currently there, they're going to be grandfathered in under the old policy, but they are being asked to voluntarily agree to be under the new policy. So the church is letting them volunteer. Do you know what that form looks like, RFM, that they're given? No. Let me, uh, let me show you. Oh, wow, a coup. A so scoop. here it is. Are you a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Because if you mark no, then you don't have to sign up under this new policy because okay. you're not a member. You don't have to hold a temple recommend. You would mark that no. I would mark that yes. Yes. Well, I wouldn't be teaching at a church school because I'm at this point in my life, I'm so constituted that I can't teach what I don't agree with. I will teach there if they want to give me a job. Yeah, I bet it would be a blast. Total You'll have blast. to check the desk every day for tape recorders or something though. Toga. Um, so if you mark yes, then you get this section below. So your membership record number that we've removed, we've We've, um, what's the word, uh, what's the word that when they black out redact. the spot? Yeah, except we didn't redact it like they did in the McKenna-Denson case. We just redacted just the prevalent information that would dox somebody that spoke to me. But well, obviously this person's a member. You've already given that much away, Bill. Yeah. As a member, so this is what they have to agree to, or vol this is their voluntary agreement. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I voluntarily accept as a condition of ongoing employment that I will, um, I'm going to get rid of this quote. Give me a second here. That's okay. I'm going to take that off for a minute. Maven, if we can just leave those off for just a second. As a member of the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, I voluntarily accept as a condition of ongoing employment that I will hold and be worthy to hold a current temple recommend with the understanding that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints may adjust the criteria for a temple recommend from time to time. And then there's only one box underneath RFM, because usually when you voluntarily agree to something, you can both agree and disagree. But on the church's form, there's only one box, and it says I agree. And then further down below, because I've got another one too, let me uh, go back one. 
Here is uh, the, the other one. It kind of tells you that the word voluntary, as used in that sentence, is exactly what it is that I thought it was when I first heard it. It's not voluntary at all. If you don't mark that box and you click submit, nothing happens. It won't go anywhere. The only option you have to voluntarily agree is to voluntarily agree. <laughs> that is hysterical because it's not voluntary. Not voluntary not. at all. But the it's whole not. deal is they'll say it's voluntary because, yeah, it's voluntary. You can either agree or you can, you know, pound sand. Yeah. So I won't tell you whether my friend ended up agreeing or not. I just know that there are professors there who have not agreed. And the rumor is that they will be talked to at their year-end review and strongly encouraged to get in line with this voluntary agreement. Well, that they be very it, strongly encouraged. If, if there's any coercion involved, can it be voluntary? Well, no, except with the <laughs> church's definition. <laughs> so uh, with that, we have both the modern moment modernity crisis of 2022 and we have the modernity crisis of 1911 wrapped up in an episode of Mormonism Live. Beautifully done, Bill. Beautifully done. Can I just add another couple comments? I'll try and be brief. No, no. Have make callers. them long because I just put the number up on the screen. 662-667-6667. This My is our Victory number. for Satan segment. Uh, give us a call. 662-MORMONS uh, with an S on the end. And uh, yes, RFM, what are, you, what are you thinking? Just that it's so easy for us to forget the past and this entire evolution uh, mania that was sweeping the country, culminating in the Scopes trial in 1925, Christianity in general and the Mormon church as well considered evolution a threat, a dire threat to Christianity and to Mormonism, that if accepted, it would destroy the church. And of course, those fears ended up being unsubstantiated. They ended up being overblown because evolution is now accepted by everybody, pretty much, not everybody, but much more widely accepted than it was then. And religion has found a way to cope with it and to live alongside of it. And I think that if the church looked at the history of this incident and compared it to what's going on now with the gay issue, that they could maybe realize that this gay issue thing, first off, there's a, a a more effective and a less effective way to deal with it, okay? And the less effective way to deal with it is to deal with it the way the BYU did back in 1911 with this issue, okay? And they really don't need to be that worried, okay? Because the the gay issue, the, uh, the trans issue, uh, all these issues together that the church is so concerned about, destroying the church, it's not going to happen, okay? You don't have to be so wrapped around the axle. You will survive, uh, whether the audience likes to hear that or not. I'm just talking to the leadership of the church and whoever replaced Timothy Dykes in the SCMC who's monitoring the program. You will survive. It'll be okay. Just try not to replicate the mistakes that you made 100 years ago, which is going to make it so much worse in the here and now. Yeah, and I just want to note, if you notice the Board of Education at Brigham Young, Brigham Young University, I've worked hard to try to say that better. Thank you for correcting that. The bill. reason, because before I was Mormon, I learned a joke about Brigham Young, Brigham Young, girls and women. And I started off with that ground before I joined the church and learned that his name was Brigham Young. Yes. 
But when bring I bring them young at, and bring them early, yeah, bring them young and bring them. Yeah. Um, when you look at the board of education, they are by seniority and they are by authority. In other words, Paul V. Johnson, I'll put it up here, was called as a general authority in 2005. Gerald Causé became a general authority in 2007. The board of education isn't, um, isn't autonomous. Even like we already understand this, but when you recognize that the listing order is by uh, authority and by uh, when they became sustained as a general authority in the church in order, you recognize that Brigham Young University and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are one in the same. And so when Brigham Young University unethically uses its police department, when it goes to gay bars and tracks people down, when it does this and it does that, and it does all these things that are unethical and egregiously unethical, unethical, never for a moment think that you should give it space to be its own thing. It is one of the arms of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, BYU is the LDS church in its purest form. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the church, because the church never really wants to catch up and it has to be dragged kicking and screaming. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And and that may have been too brief, but let, let me just go ahead and say what I'm saying there is that in the outside world, outside of the BYU campus, the church is restricted in a number of ways from what it can do and the means by which it can exert its authority and control over people and even over members. But on campus at BYU, the church has more power than it does off the campus. And we see what happens when the church has more power to exert its control. And by and large, they are not good things. Yeah, no. Yeah, it, um, man, it, you're, you made a good point, which is BYU will survive dumbing down its education once again, it'll get through that. What it does is a deep injustice to its students, number one. And what it doesn't recognize is that if it, if it supports orthodoxy over rational thinking, it ends up having a whole nother generation of people who have faith crises in 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And it ends up losing more people anyway. Whereas if it can, tell the younger generation like, Hey, we believe in evolution. We believe in this. We believe in that. Like the more up to date it gets, the less sudden fracture a student's going to experience when they learn new facts that completely go against the old view that they were taught by their school. For instance, I've got up on my shelf here, all of the college and Institute manuals, the church history and the fullness of times. It's about a inch and a half thick book. And when you read that book, you don't get any of the messiness. It is so faithful, so whitewashed, so simple that when, when I learned the messiness years later from after joining the church, it became crystal clear that what my church taught me wasn't in line with reality. And hence the feelings of deception and betrayal were significantly higher. Yeah. 
I, I don't know if the church recognizes this yet, but what they're doing with their young people by teaching them these things, which they're going to encounter later on in life and find out that, no, this is not correct. Why did the church teach me this? What they're doing is they're in the business of setting up their young people like bowling pins to get hit by a strike later on in life. And it's not if they get hit by a bowling ball later on. It's just a matter of when. And that win is becoming sooner and sooner all the time with the availability of the information on the internet. Yeah. So if you're ready, we can go to some phone calls. I'm so ready. Perfect. So I'm going to turn that up. And this will be our first caller. Caller, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What's your name? Hey, my name is Laban. No relation. Gotcha. And uh, what's on your mind tonight, my friend? Yeah, so I'm actually a BYU transfer student. And I thought you guys would be interested on what they do for STEM majors when they take bio back at least when I was at BYU. They actually print off and give the, bi the biology professors this packet, and they are demanded to share this packet called the BYU Evolution Packet. And it has all these different approved first, first presidency statements throughout the ages that they will feed to us and say, look, the first presidency's view on evolution has changed over the last century. Maybe it will continue to change. And then the biology professor, professor then begged us to take evolution seriously and begged us not to bother him about dinosaurs, that we were there to do real science. And I just think it's kind of sad, but also hilarious in a way, in an absurd way, that they actually are forced to share five pages of the BYU Evolution Packet. I just Googled it, and it's still online, and it's just fascinating and just a little sad. I just wanted to share that with you guys. So the, the uh, sorry about that, the packet is online, so you can still access that and look at it? Yes, as far as I know, they still need to share this, but this was back in the early 2010s that I went experienced this. Gotcha. But I just thought you guys would uh, find that interesting, that yeah. they have to share this packet saying, look, we didn't believe in evolution, but now we believe in it a tiny bit more, and we're leaving it open. They said, oh, God will tell us when Jesus comes down in the second coming, he'll let us know all things, and we can ask him. God and hasn't that's where told leave anything in 200 years, so I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. Laban, thank you for bringing that up. By the way, that was something else that I did in my studies, which was very interesting that this very famous first presidency statement on the origin of man came out in 1909, which was certainly in response to things going on in the world, but may have also been somewhat related to what was going on with, at the BYU campus during this time with these professors talking about evolution. And in fact, there's a line in there. There's a line in... I read it again today. There's a line in the 1909 first presidency statement, which suggests that such is the case. Now, if you'll give me a second here, uh, it's a very long statement. And there is one paragraph in here that is pointedly anti-evolution. Let me read this, okay? The pointedly anti-evolution part is here. It is held by some that Adam was not the first man upon this earth and that the original human being was a development from lower orders of the animal creation. These, however, are the theories of men. And then it goes on to say, the word of the Lord declared that Adam was the first man of all men and we are therefore in duty bound 
to regard him as the primal parent of our race. So the entire thing is basically kind of against evolution. This is the one where it really uh, puts a fine point on it. Um, there's an, uh, Here's the thing. Okay. Toward the beginning of the same statement, and once again, it's multi-pages. Here's what it says. To tell the truth as God has... Re okay. A restatement of the original attitude of the church relative to this matter is all that will be attempted here. So they're saying that we're not going to say anything, anything new. We're just going to quote scripture. To tell the truth as God has revealed it and commend it to the acceptance of those who need to conform their opinions thereto is the sole purpose of this presentation. That was a telling clause. The acceptance of those who need to conform their opinions thereto. Well, they can't be talking to anybody except members of the church with that line. So that makes it very clear to me that they're probably talking at least to these professors at BYU. By the way, a few years later in 1925, so that's what, 1909, 1925, 16 years later, the same year as the, the Scopes trial, a new first presidency issues a new statement, which is really the same statement that was issued in 1909, except for the fact that it's only one-fifth as long. And this paragraph, among others, that is anti-evolution, is taken out. So there definitely was a change between 1909 and the first presidency statement in 1925, softening it on the subject of evolution being something that was wrong. And um, it's very interesting that after that, according to research done by Ben Spackman, I wrote, I read an article he wrote uh, last year on the subject. But apparently, whenever anybody asked any questions about this, the first presidency statement that was sent out was the 1925 first presidency statement, which was... Uh, not the 1909 one, which I always thought was the more famous one, but apparently it wasn't at that time. And it was this was seen as a way to supersede it without actually saying that they were superseding it and to soften their rejection of evolution. So it does appear that the leaders of the church have softened their opposition to evolution, even between 1909 and 1925. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've got... Three other calls here. Then yes. Oh, no, you're good. No, you're good. I'm just. All right. So caller, you're on the air. Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and uh, Bill Real. Hi. Um, I first just wanted to say thank you so much for all of the work that you guys do. I love your show so much. And I think I learn more each episode than I did in all my years in the church. <laughs> so, um. And I just had one quick comment. Please. Um, it had to do with the, um, the form that you put up that they, the, vo the voluntary quote unquote um, form that they would fill out. Right. And it made me think, cause I know you brought up consent earlier and it made me think of that because literally in that little, before they check the agree box, it's like, they're consenting to the unknowns again because it doesn't it say in the wording that it can change. Like, so it just seems like I just thought that was really interesting because I'm like, we're going to agree to something that could change at any time. 
Yeah. So once again, we're there's there's no like we're consenting to unknowns. Right. Imagine us really agreeing consistent. on a contract, but I have the freedom to change the contract later. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and yes, I had noticed exactly. that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what you do when you go to the temple for the first time as well. But yeah. having said that, no, I think what the lawyers who drafted this are trying to do in a somewhat ham-fisted kind of way is get around the fact that when you enter into a contract with somebody, okay, one party cannot unilaterally change the terms of the contract. That makes sense, right? Right. This is the contract. We entered into this contract. One side doesn't get to change the terms of it and say, okay, now you're bound to the changed terms of the contract. So I think what they're doing there is they're trying to get around that by having the person sign off and agree that the church gets to change the contract and they are still agreeing to be bound by it, regardless of what those changes may be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, they could make the temple recommend much more strenuous, right? Much more rigid, create new rules. And then once you voluntarily accepted the current one, you would be under obligation to take the latter one that you don't even know exists yet. Yeah. And it's when lawyers get involved with stuff. I mean, why not just say that they have to hold a valid current temple recommend, period, end of story. Instead, they say you have to be worthy to hold one and you have to hold one. I mean, come on. Right. Are you, why don't you just come out and say, we're suspecting that you're going to be lying. And if you're going to be lying, then who the hell cares if we're, we're, we'll say we're, we're worthy anyway, right? So it's kind of ridiculous. Just hold a valid temple recommend, period. But, you know, the lawyers get involved. And a lot of times they, they, they take care of problems before they happen. That's what lawyers are supposed to do. But sometimes they end up creating problems out of the desire to fix everything in the future for eternity. And I think this is a problem that they're creating. And I think it's especially a problem when they have one box that says, I agree. I mean, is there any place in the temple where you're taking a covenant where it says, bow your head and say yes or no? It doesn't, does it? It's always bow your head and say yes. It's the same box. I agree. Yeah. Consent, healthy consent, informed consent, not really part of the program. Um all right. Two more quick calls. Annie, you're on the line uh, with Mormonism Live. What's on your mind? Hi. What RFM was saying about um, learning um, non-science at BYU and then going out into the world, for me, it was um, like the opposite. I, I grew up in a younger creationist home, and then I went to BYU and took a science class. <laughs> And I remember going into the day that we were going to start talking about evolution and the professor had lined up all of these skulls, you know, from, I don't know, Neanderthal and Astrophysicus and so forth. And my mind was blown. (laughs) And that was one of my, sort of the beginning of my shelf items, wondering what else had my parents said that was just not true. But I don't think I would have listened if it hadn't been at BYU. Right. I think I would have been able to completely compartmentalize, you know, like I had all through high school. Like, this is what I learned in class, but this is what I know is true. Mm-hmm. And they're not the same thing. Annie, did you ever bring that up to your parents? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I probably wouldn't have either. I'm afraid my... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Years later, we were at the... Uh, 
doing a dinosaur museum on campus and with my kids and my mom was there like, we, we don't believe in dinosaurs, do we? And I, I just, I, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> um, well, there's bones. <laughs> no, they're not elephant bones reconstructed in strange ways. Those are dinosaurs, but I don't think it ever came up after that. Yeah, they're right there in front of you, Mom. It's like, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? I mean, these are bones of creatures that were big and used to live here a long time ago. And yeah, we call them dinosaurs. It's amazing that when something has been established as much as dinosaurs have been as historical verities, that people whose theology does not allow for the existence of dinosaurs will go to the most incredible lengths to avoid having them live on this earth. And Mormons have this usually by saying, well, this earth was created from parts of other earths, right? And so uh, these dinosaur bones got carried in. They were creatures that lived on other earths. They have nothing to do with this earth, but this earth was made from other earths that had the bones in them. And I used to agree with that until I started thinking, well, what are we saying? That this earth was created like a jigsaw puzzle? Because these are intact skeletons. Uh, it was put together like this, you know, like we put together a jigsaw puzzle. And so we have intact skeletons from creatures from another planet here, as opposed to being like, you know, all churning and molten, which would uh, not allow for dinosaur bones to continue. But that's something that I heard as a Mormon, something that Jehovah's Witnesses, I've heard them say, because they don't have any room for dinosaurs in their theology either, that, uh, but they don't have this earth being created from pieces of other planets like Mormons do. So that's a handy thing for Mormons. But the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Satan put the dinosaur bones under the earth in order to direct men away from having faith in God. Man, those two are always just really playing agree. trickster games with us, aren't they? They're just trying to one-up each other, you know? Yeah. Have you ever heard either of those, Annie? Yeah. Oh, Annie. Yeah. Sure she I, I, I remember the um, the dinosaurs from other planets being kind of tossed around once or twice when I was a teenager, but um, I hadn't heard it for a long time. Yeah, it's bringing back memories. It was still, it, it struck me. Boy, that's, that's really efficient. You know, you don't have to wait billions of years to make the planet. You just go take parts and put it together very carefully, and there you go. Adam and Eve. Boom. Yeah. It's like Elohim's body shop. <laughs> He's just putting this this car together from pieces of like, old junkers. That's a good way to do it. Thanks for the call, Annie. Thank you, Annie. Thanks. Bye. All right. Last call. Did she start off saying Australopithecus? I mean, she named... Uh, she said Australopithecus. I was yeah. proud of her for saying that. Yeah, and when yeah. I say proud, all I mean is that's one that most people don't say. And I remember Australopithecus from 10th grade humanities class where he had to read this book about it. And I, I, I labored to figure out what the heck that word was, the Australopithecus. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. Our last call for the night is Brandon. Brandon, you are on Mormonism Live. Uh, take us home, my friend. Yes, uh, just a quick uh, comment and, and a question for you guys. Uh, I'm a recent BYU Idaho graduate, and uh, congratulations! The broad oh, 
thank you. <laughs> um, the broadcast that had me um, thinking about uh, experience I had. I took a, an intro science class in which we discussed evolution from a close family member of mine. And I remember in the class we discussed um, um, evolution and how um, one of the examples we gave was uh, that there are footprints, uh, human footprints that date before uh, the Adam Younger uh, creationist narrative. And I'm, I'm close to this person. He's a, family, he's a close family member of mine. I remember talking and having conversations with him when I could, back when I could have conversations about the church and uh, how, in regards to the science server, this yearning that he had. Um, he said, we know that there are people, there are these things that don't line up with the scriptural accounts that we have. There's evidence for it, but um, we just don't have any, there's, there seems to be this lack of insight from the high, uh, high up church leaders. And I, in talking with them, I always sense this yearning for a, a further light and knowledge that never seems to come. And I guess the follow-up question to that would be for you guys, do you think that the church will ever... Um, come out with new doctrine or anything that will um, uh, help it line up with uh, current scientific teachings? No, not a chance. I'll say yes, but it'll take 300 <laughs> years. You know, the church has spent its career fighting against exactly that kind of thing. It's a good idea that you bring up, which is why I'm confident the church will never do it. <laughs> Yeah, how many how many members of the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve are? Uh, thank you for the call, by the way. Uh, are lawyers? I mean, isn't uh, Quentin Cook's a lawyer? D. Not enough is my answer. <laughs> D. Todd Christopherson. Not until there's sixteen lawyers in the top fifteen. <laughs> oh man! But you know, yeah. footprints. Yeah, they got footprints of human beings that go back more than six thousand years. You've got bones of human beings that go back tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of years. So, yeah, it's a real problem. And the church has sort of tried to distance itself, I think, from the young earth creationism. Uh, I think they pretty much distanced themselves from that, at least as far as I know. I don't think Brad Wilcox talked about that particular issue last Sunday. Um, but there are other things that the church continues to hold on to, which are equally as problematic, like the Tower of Babel, Adam and Eve being literal people, and uh, Noah and his ark, etc., yeah, yeah. Um, oh my gosh, man. Dan Vogel asks an excellent question. Excellent. Can we get that up there again? Hey, Maven, can you come on and read that? Hello, Maven. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I've been dying to hear your voice, okay. more of your voice. Can you read this great question that Dan Vogel poses <laughs> about the uh, problem with the dinosaurs from another planet? Theory. How did the dinosaurs from other planets get stuck in the tar? And why haven't they been resurrected on that other planet? Boom, well, yeah, obviously, I, well, they're lesser beings. So, you know, they're, they're but everybody gets resurrected. Daughters. Everybody gets resurrected. Including dinosaurs? Including Nash. I think that's a loophole. Including Dan Nash. Vogel. Those <laughs> damn lazy learners, you know? Yeah, I think that was a very good point by Dan Vogel. <laughs> two of them, really. <laughs> yeah, two two good points. It's uh, two, two, two points in one. Our show keeps getting longer and longer, RFM. Uh, I'm all done. Those are the end of the calls. Anything else from you, my friend? 
No, that is it, my friend. But thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We had a great time. And I think you did a great job of picking a subject of interest historically in the church, which most people have not heard of. But it's like history is repeating itself. You know what I mean, Bill? Yeah. Yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. Folks, if you love the program, if you're liking the show, do us a giant favor. Go on to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, send us just a few bucks a month, five bucks a month. It ends up being, what, 60 bucks a year, and we'll just keep showing up every Wednesday night in your in your office or your living room and uh, keep putting out bedroom. great content. So anyway, send us a donation and, and help us keep the program alive and appreciate all of you who do. Um, and thank you, each of you, for tuning in and listening. It would be a huge dinosaur-sized favor for you to do that. An Australopithecus. 